0: Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there, and on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Couturium.com, in affiliation with Quadel Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.cultureum.com. That's www.c-u-l-t-u-r-e-u-m.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag drjpodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled Time for a Road Trip. And my guest today is Pat Vetzel, the creator and host of the award-winning Docu series and podcast Cancer Road Trip and Bump in the Road. Welcome, Pat, to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: We have not known each other for a long time, but we have already discovered that we have at least four things in common. We are both cancer survivors. We both love to travel. We both have a podcast and we both love oysters and Muscadet wine. <laughs> so let's start with the lightest topic first, oysters and Muscadet wine. Oh no, that's that's a wonderful topic, near and dear to my heart. Okay, so so while prepping for this interview, you told me a, a great story about the first time you had oysters. Would would you share that with the listeners?
1: Oh sure, it was in Versailles, outside of Paris. My father was at a business meeting with a gentleman he did a lot of a lot of business with, so I went along for this luncheon. And I was looking around the restaurant, and the waiters were bringing these tall tiered plates, uh, like kind of like a high pie- plate, you know, where you can put pies or cookies or whatever on each tier. They were bringing these to the tables and I didn't know what they were. So I asked and my father's business associate looked at me. He said, you haven't had oysters. And I said, no. So he snaps his finger, garcon, calls the waiter over. And a few minutes later, oysters appear at the table. It was briny love from first bite. And ever since then, oysters have been part of my travels. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a great story. I love that. How old were you then?
1: Oh, well, I guess I was maybe eight or 10, probably 10.
0: Wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's a fairly early age to try oysters already.
1: Oh, I, My family traveled a lot and they were very adventuresome when it came to food. So for me, um, I would try just about anything. Uh, I wasn't afraid to try different foods or flavors or, or anything of that sort.
0: So would you mind telling us a little bit about your family? You traveled, uh, your your father took you on a business luncheon. That's pretty cool.
1: Well, my father sold specialty oil products and we would spend a fair amount of time in Europe every year. I grew up in the States, uh, in Northern New Jersey, and we would go on these traveling expeditions. He'd go say, to the Paris Air Show for business and my sister and I would fly over and meet him afterwards and travel. So from a, from the time I was five or six years old, I was always going along on the trips. Sometimes they were last months. Uh, I was out of school part of the time. I'd be bringing homework with me and whatnot. But back then at that point in time, you could still do that type of thing. And I always was more than a, I always more than kept up on my studies. That was always a given. But I think that the opportunity to travel and particularly at a young age is such a wonderful opportunity. I think it's an education unto itself.
0: Absolutely. And you traveled mainly in Europe, or did you go uh, other places? Europe. Europe. Yep, mainly what, in Europe. What, where did you like it the most?
1: Oh, gosh, everywhere. I'm one of those people who I kind of find what I like in a given circumstance, and I incorporate that into my life. I love France. I love the food. I love Northern Italy. Oh, my goodness. Greece. Greece is stunning and beautiful. Uh, Croatia, the old Yugoslavia. It, it's hard to really come up with a favorite.
0: So when did you discover Muscadet wine to go with the oysters?
1: (laughs) You know, um, I think that was more of a Northern California thing. Um, I lived up in the uh, Tahoe area for years, and it's about, oh, two and a half or three hours from wine country. And there were many fabulous restaurants, obviously, down there. And I think my Muscadet aha moment probably occurred with oysters somewhere in the Healdsburg area.
0: That's great. And it's a great match, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. It's just so perfect. We are big Oyster fans and Muscadet wine fans. So that's also something uh, something our, my family enjoys very much as well. So you went to the University of Pennsylvania and studied mm-hmm. international finance. Would you tell us a little bit about your college years? Um, well, um, I went to Wharton as an
1: undergrad and it was just very demanding. Uh, I played squash, uh, which was a lot of fun. But really, my undergraduate years were just a lot of work. Uh, I hear about people that go to school; they have all this fun. That was really just not my experience.
0: Okay, and you decided to study international finance. Yes. Why?
1: Probably partly because of my travel. Wharton is, was at that point in time was really known as a school for finance. I was also had an eye towards looking looking at a good job when I got out of school, uh, so it was practical and it made sense. I think that it has been an interesting choice. I'm grateful for a very good education. But I also think that that type of education stifles your inherent interests and creativities a bit, or maybe it doesn't stifle them, it just puts them on hold until you pick them up later in life. You know, really, when you start getting into things, you look at acquisitions, divestitures, Uh, back in the 80s, leveraged buyouts were quite the rage. There are a lot of elements of it that are incredibly creative and very interesting. Um, So I I wouldn't say it was dry at all. It was really fun. I'd look at the Wall Street Journal and say, I'm working on that deal. Isn't that neat? Um, But I think that as I've gotten older, I've sought out other avenues of expression that maybe fall into what is more commonly associated with being a creative field.
0: Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no connection to finance, so I, I couldn't tell you anything about that. But let me ask you one more question about finance. How international is international finance?
1: These days, it's very international. I mean, the world has changed a lot since I've been in school, but I think that everything is connected. Markets flow one into the other. What happens in Asia impacts markets here. Uh, So I think we're a very connected global society these days.
0: Mm. But did your working in international finance allow you to still connect with other countries and other cultures, or do you then only do it on a certain level?
1: I, I would say more on a certain level, perhaps um, th- that was connecting with cultures was not part of my job description.
0: Sure, sure. No, but I mean, do you think that it would enhance or do you think that it would improve one's abilities to do well in that field? Well,
1: I, I think that certainly being multilingual or something like that would open doors. Uh, I think for all of us, as we travel, it it just opens our eyes to a broader world.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that's always a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's move on to a very difficult topic. You are a cancer survivor. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that?
1: No, um, in 2009, I was diagnosed with a rare and supposedly incurable lymphoma. And um, to say that I was stunned would be the understatement of the year. And I think one of the things that's so difficult about cancer, particularly when they tell you it's not curable, is a loss of control. And I sought out control through education. I read everything I could get my hands on. At the time, the internet and the web really weren't great, weren't, weren't resources for all that much. One of the books I read that was very influential was David Servan Shriver's Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. It was written in 2008, I believe, and updated in 2012. And it remains a relevant book today. It's a great story. He was a, I believe, a neuroscientist at the University of Pittsburgh, a young, hot, and rising uh, academic. And he was doing a series of studies that involved sending people through a scanner. One of his patients or subjects did not show up. So he went through the scanner. And at 30 or 33 years old, that is how he discovered he had a brain tumor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he, you know, obviously went into treatment, spent about a year with surgery and radiation and whatever else uh, was decided. His life fell apart. He got divorced. He wasn't working. I mean, it was just an absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, hopefully cured, he says to his doctor, well, what do I do now? And the doctor said, go back to your life. So he went back to this crazed life of a young academic um, doctor, You know, eating poorly, keeping long hours, et cetera, et cetera and his tumor came back. So this time he goes on a global tour de force, looking at what creates health around the world and what creates health from a very scientific and medical perspective, not, you know, fad diets or anything like that. And it is just a a remarkable book. And it's a book that meant a lot to me because it showed a way to make decisions that gave you some semblance of control in an utterly uncontrollable situation.
0: So how was your lymphoma discovered? How did you notice that you were ill? Actually, I
1: was down at a private equity meeting uh, at Half Moon Bay, south of San Francisco. Beautiful location. It perches on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific. The rooms have uh, fireplaces and fire pits outside uh, in a little patio. It's, it's just stunning. And I really got sick. I'm so sick. I wasn't sure I was, a, I was going to be, I would be able to get home. I didn't make it home. And when I didn't get well for a few weeks, I finally went to see an ENT, your nose and throat doc, because my notes and my neck were just up. And I, I couldn't figure out why. And I said, Oh, give me some. I never take any drugs really. So my idea of drugs are, is, is an aspirin. And I said to him, Oh, give me some antibiotics. You know, it'll go away. And he said, You have lymphoma. I said, What is that? I do not. Just give me the antibiotics. So he humored me. And of course, the antibiotics did nothing. I went back and um, went in for a biopsy. The initial biopsy came back with just a, a general diagnosis of indolent lymphoma. But when I went to apply for a vaccine trial at Stanford, they redid the biopsy and they came back with a different diagnosis. And what was that? Monodal marginal zone lymphoma a subcategory of follicular lymphoma, but fairly rare and fairly unusual. And the reality is there was not going to be any research money going into this.
0: So at the time, how how was your life? Could you tell us about your lifestyle a little bit? How were you living at the time? You know, I had a pretty healthy
1: lifestyle. Uh, My diet needed improvement. I used to think that blackened ribeyes and margaritas were a great meal. (laughs) Um, Obviously that changed. I went vegan for a while, but I decided life without cheese wasn't worth living. And eventually I came to a balance that was um, a a low glycemic vegetable rich diet. And I still eat that way to this day. I eat very little to no red meat. Um, I eat fish or organic chicken in terms of um, protein but I have a very vegetable-rich diet. I think when you're going through chemo, for me, when I went through one, one round of chemo, I totally lost my ability to eat or any desire to eat. And it wasn't life-threatening or anything, but I just did not want to eat. And with that experience came the realization that whatever I could get into my body, I had to, it had to be nutrient-dense. I had to max out the nutrition. And that was a total paradigm shift in terms of the way I thought about food. Mm -hmm. Food before was an adventure. It was fun. It was a new restaurant. Now, all of a sudden, food was all about nourishment and health.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm, That's very interesting. And were you facing this alone? Um, I was dating somebody who
1: I'd asked. I had a lot of trouble uh, with one of the drugs. And the oncology nurse was nice enough to stay till like eight o'clock at night. I mean, I was in the infusion room for like 10 hours. And uh, I asked uh, the gentleman I was dating to come on up and just sit with me for a little bit. It had been a really rough day. And he said, oh, no, he would go down to the local wine bar and I could call when um, I needed ride home. And so I I really found that um, the relationships I had, by and large, fell apart during my cancer experience. Uh, I played a lot of tennis, but when I wasn't winning, nobody wanted to play with me. Mm -hmm. so it was a I think it's a very common experience for most people going through cancer that their um, friendships and social relationships rearrange themselves considerably and certainly that was my experience Mm
0: -hmm. did you have any family around as well or or no that's that's very difficult isn't it to to go through it just was what it was you know I had a I had what I had to deal with and
1: you no, know, th- there there were no other options.
0: We we talked about my experience and sort of for for me. I mean, I had all this family around me, but my big problem was that I had three little kids who were relying on me to perform. Yeah. <laughs> the, the same way. So so it was it was it was great for the emotional support, but uh, actually a lot of pressure. You know, I couldn't just take naps, or I couldn't just take well, care of I- myself, or or, or 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 nurture myself. I had to nurture my little ones. So, well, I think a lot of people
1: find themselves having, trying to live up to the expectations of others and to soothe the concerns of others Mm -hmm. as they go through cancer treatment. I think that's a pretty common thing, but it's exhausting ultimately. And just as you were saying, you, you really do need to find time to look after yourself and nurture yourself a bit because your body's going through a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so your lymphoma was discovered and you went through treatment, you had chemotherapy, um, and then what happened after that?
1: Uh, surgery, chemotherapy, uh, radiation, and then the cancer came back again.
0: How long did this all, what time frame are we looking at?
1: Uh, 2009, I was diagnosed. I started treatment at the end of that year, um, and I was in treatment through the end of 2015.
0: So it's it's also the the length of of I mean you know sort of uh, my cancer story I will just say my little cancer story pales in comparison I mean I was very lucky um, in my cancer story or I feel I was very fortunate I had a very small tumor um, that was removed and oh
1: but mm-hmm. I, I'm going to disagree with you I don't think any cancer story is small mm-hmm. I think that the emotional impact of it is huge mm-hmm. on the patient and on the family mm-hmm. and I think that. For many of us, it's a real game-changing event in that we realize how fragile life can be, Mm -hmm. and that's uh, I think that's that can be a really beneficial aha moment. Mm
0: -hmm. I agree with you on that absolutely. And so, 2015, were you cured or no? Just um,
1: no evidence of disease, which may or may not mean anything. And actually, in 2000, I'm trying to think now. Was it 17 or 18? 17. I was very sick again. And uh, I had had some business things, horrendous business things fall apart. So I had a lot of really tough things going on in my life and I became very sick. I was vomiting blood. My hair was falling out and I went to see my oncologist and he said, oh, well, we're going to run 10 different tests or whatever the number was, and we'll find something. He never once asked me anything about my life, anything about what was going on, anything about stress. And I left that office and I thought, well, if the past is any indication of the future, I probably have 18 to 24 months. Um, What am I going to do? And I have all these bills and everything. Mm -hmm. So I left the office and I decided to put my house up for sale. I threw everything in storage and I hit the road. And that's when I started the blog Cancer Road Trip.
0: Mm -hmm we'll get to that. I I, that's, that's, that's so interesting. And and so inspiring. Um, Let me stay with your treatments for for just another second. How was it for you? After all the treatments from 2009 to 2015? Was there a period of remission as well where where you felt good, strong, healthy? Yes, I got I I got uh, about a year and a half remission,
1: I think it was out of the first round of chemo. It was, okay. maybe it was a little longer, but mm-hmm. no, I did get a remission. And that was the nature of this particular type of cancer. You go through treatment, you get a remission, you go through treat, it comes back. You go through treatment, you get a remission, it comes back.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how was it the second time when it came back?
1: I was in a very different place. I think the first time I was just angry. I just did not want to Interact with anybody. I w- I really did not want to do chemo, which is why I'd applied for the clinical trial at Stanford, only to find out that I'd been misdiagnosed. It was I it was the first time the first round through was just tough. By the second time, I would had shifted 180 degrees. Uh, I was friendly towards the people I saw in the infusion rooms. I was willing to engage. I took it kind of much more in stride. So they, they were both, they were two very different experiences. I had changed a lot in the interim.
0: Do you think that the second round of treatments was as a result more effective?
1: I don't know. It was uh, at that time, it was bendamustine and rituxan, which was newly approved when I went through it. Obviously, it did a pretty good job. There weren't supposed to be a lot of side effects, although I ended up having a fair number of side effects.
0: You know, it's, it's very hard to say. Absolutely, I don't think it's a question that can be answered scientifically either. We can't prove the effects of our emotional relationship to the to the treatment. I think that's that's not something. Well,
1: that- I I I think our mindset has a lot to do with it. I really do. I mean, I think it's been it's been proven. You can look at Candace Pert and other investigators who have absolutely shown there is a mind body biological mind body connection that is real. Um, personally, I'd like to think that at some point in our future evolution as a species, we can develop our mind
0: enough to heal many things, but that certainly is not where we are now. I absolutely agree that the mind and the body are connected and that you can, the, the emotional, your, your, your mindset, your, your emotions, the, the way you, you relate to it can influence the illness. I just, I think for me, it was, um, something that that made me very scared that and and that made me feel guilty that I wasn't doing enough that I wasn't positive enough so so I think that sometimes this this idea that the mind and the body are connected can also be a, a, quite a weight you know that then we feel this 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 pressure or this guilt to control the illness with our mind yeah
1: for me I think it more it opened a door of spiritual exploration that continues to this day um, it opened, uh, it opened up meditation for me for one thing, uh, which has been a game changer in life. And it awakened a sense of mortality, uh, which gives me a sense of urgency that I both want to live fully and contribute fully while I'm here. Uh, but for me, it, it was uh, much more positive in that this world of inquiry that opened up was endless and fascinating and connected
0: me to people all over the world. So tell us about Cancer Road Trip, because that is an an amazing film and travel project. And um, please tell us about Cancer Road Trip.
1: Well, as I was traveling, it occurred to me, if I could travel to heal, why couldn't others? So the idea of giving a a drop dead amazing vacation to people who'd been through cancer came about, but it wasn't just a vacation. It was again, an opportunity to go to a wonderful place, but to reflect And to really look at what are those elements of a cancer uh, experience that resonate with you and with all of us, and what did you get out of it? What did you learn? Because I think we have so much to learn from each other. And I think some of the commonalities that come out of a cancer experience for many people, not for everybody, but for many people, the sense of mortality, uh, a sense of profound isolation. You find out who your friends are and who they aren't, managing expectations of other people, the frailty of our bodies sometimes. These uh, and just an entirely out of control situation that disrupts our life and what we thought was going to be our life path. I think these are stories that need to be told because one, the people are diagnosed every single day. The emotional wheel is being recreated every single day with every diagnosis. People need to know they're not alone. The things they're thinking, uh, other people are thinking and feeling them as well. And I think in that sense of community, there's a lot of strength and healing to be had.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the lessons that you learned from your, from your guests Oh, wow. I I, I learn
1: every single, (laughs) with every single podcast. Um, Let me give you a little background first on bump in the road. Um, Obviously, when COVID hit, travel stopped. So cancer road trip was on hold. Uh, And I spent three weeks being totally depressed after all this work and having everything lined up and ready to go. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, well, I can travel virtually. So I started the podcast bump in the road. And what we focus on, it goes beyond cancer. We focus on people and their lives and the difficulties that we all face in life. And I look for people who have had pretty profound bumps in the road and how it's impacted them. And ideally, I like to have a guest that uh, uses a bump in the road as a portal into a more conscious and meaningful life. So the stories are just amazing. I think one of the common pieces of the stories is... Uh, I'm going to say say yes. Judy Pearson said that. Eric Weinmayer said that. Other people are saying it. Um, Say yes when opportunity comes into your life. Go for it. I think another common thread is learn to be comfortable with dis-ease. Not disease, but dis-ease. Learn to be comfortable in what one of my guests calls the void, that place where nothing is comfortable, but everything is possible and learn to, to spend more time in that creative space, outside your daily rut, because that's where interesting things will happen in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, what are some of the other common courage? Certainly, perseverance. Uh, Isolation is a common theme that comes up throughout mm-hmm. um, the conversations, and how people deal with it, and how they become stronger through it, actually.
0: So so now you you're, you're based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Have you... Have you settled down in Santa Fe or do you think you'll go on the road again?
1: I might go on the road again. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm waiting to see how some things play out. And Santa Fe is a, 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 New Mexico is beautiful. It really is. But there are a lot of beautiful places and I don't, I'm just not sure. I'm toying with the idea of maybe taking a year and spending it between two or three different places because Bump is totally portable. All I need is Wi Fi. hmm
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and now you are in remission.
1: Uh, yeah, I actually stopped going to doctors a few years ago. I decided I just didn't want to live with the constant anxiety, the expense. I mean, my God, every time I had a test, it was another $3,000 or more. Uh, my insurance didn't always cover things. And I just decided that I am going to go and live my life. And if I feel really poorly, I will seek out medical care.
0: Would you mind actually going into the payments? That that's very surprising for European audiences. So you have full insurance, um, but the insurance doesn't pay for some of the the care.
1: Oh yeah, cancer in the United States can bankrupt you fast. Really, I pay oh I pay thousand dollars a month for health insurance with a seventy six hundred dollar deductible. That means to use my health insurance costs about twenty thousand dollars a year. <laughs>
0: You're kidding. No. I actually wasn't aware of that. So, so what, happens if you, what, if, what happens if you don't have any insurance? That's just theoretically. There are some governmental hospitals, though, that you could use, aren't there?
1: Uh, we don't have governmental hospitals, but there are some programs like uh, Medicare that will cover people who don't have any money. Um, some people will actually have to give away their money or, spent, or spend it down in order to qualify for programs like that. So they find themselves both broke and sick.
0: Absolutely. But there are governmental hospitals.
1: Well, there's a VA system for veterans, but we don't have governmental hospitals here.
0: Really? I mean, in most major cities, there are hospitals that are free of cost, that that take people with, with no insurance, as far as I know, at least. Well,
1: some hospitals will take people with no insurance and they have you know, funds set aside for that. But generally speaking, the first question they ask you in the United States is for your insurance card. They want to know you can pay.
0: Mm-hmm. How have you taken care of yourself, um, if, especially if you're not going to doctors? How have you um, taken care of yourself? How do you nurture yourself? Uh, the cancer road trip and bump in the road, I'm sure, have been so satisfying to you as well. Oh,
1: they're enormously satisfying. And I'm totally in love with Bump in the Road. Um, I love the people I interview. I love the lessons and stories that come out of it. We'll be planning some online events, I hope this fall, looking at some of these common themes and things. Mm -hmm. So that has been wonderful. Usually I'm really strict, not strict, but I'm very thoughtful about my diet. Uh, But I have to say, during COVID, I've been a little less thoughtful. And now I'm back on the health bandwagon of being very thoughtful, you know, organic food and low glycemic meals, no white pasta, white rice, white bread, that that type of thing.
0: Uh, Why have you been less uh, good about it during or through COVID? I think we've all
1: just looked for some sort of indulgence or (laughs) comfort. And certainly food is part of that, at least for me
0: it's difficult to be disciplined in COVID. I mean, it, it's already such a strain that it's, 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 I think.
1: Yeah, it's actually COVID for me has been interesting because uh, I tend to work pretty independently anyway. I'm an introvert by nature, although I'm perfectly capable of giving a good presentation and talking to people and whatnot, but I really get my energy more from within rather than from other people. So for me, starting bump in the road um, during COVID has actually been really, it's been a really interesting and good thing because I've been able to travel intellectually, at least globally, talk to all sorts of people, and do it all within the confines of this COVID experience.
0: Mm. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Um, I know that you really love social media and connecting to people through technology um, and believe very much that that this connects us and and brings us together could you tell us a little bit more about that i mean i think we've had so many so much criticism of social media in the past i I think it's, it's it's also refreshing to hear you say that it actually brings uh people together as well or can bring people together as well
1: well i think some of the criticism is well justified but that's that aside it depends how you use it. Uh, for me, when I started getting involved in social media, I thought I would hate it. I mean, I just had no interest. I was doing it for business purposes only, and I just resented it. But what turned out it turned out that it was a great way to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And within the cancer community, certainly, people are really open. They're looking for connection. So it became a really easy way to meet people, to grow a global network. Um, it, 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 I think social media is what you make of it. If you let only let good and positive things into, say, your feed, then that's what you're going to see. Uh, if you're going to get involved in a lot of controversial things and yell and scream and shout at people, then that's what you're going to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very careful to keep my social media on the positive side. And I I stay away from the other nonsense.
0: (laughs) I didn't have an Instagram account last year yet. And I think I... I had a Facebook account, but I mean, uh, uh, I am really not good with all of this um, and was terrified of it. But I have to say that my experience with it has been very positive as well. I find people, uh, maybe it'll change in the future, but so far people have been incredibly kind and incredibly uh, motivating and supportive. So I I have to also say that I've been, (laughs) my experience has been very positive. I, I also think you get back what you put out. And
1: um, anytime I I run into anything on the negative side, I just get it out of my feed or I I just ignore it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've come to a place in my life where I don't need to be right. I try hard to be not judgmental. That's something certainly I think I have to work on all the time. And that's been one of the interesting facets of doing Bump in the Road is I've had to learn to always go into every single interview in a very open-minded, neutral stance. Mm-hmm. which sounds easy, but it isn't always easy. You may have read somebody's book and liked or not liked it or disagreed with it. And I think it's really important to go in with you know, neutral to positive energy so that it unfolds as it unfolds and you're not guiding it by your own predetermined, perhaps mistaken beliefs.
0: Right, so, so to actually find out, right? I mean, that's the only way that it's, that it's an actual conversation. It's an actual sharing and, and, and learning experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you also founded the Anti-Cancer Club.
1: Yeah, I put that website together. It's getting a little old now. um, And the plugins aren't working as well. And I have to figure out what to do with it. But I put that together when I was going through my first round of chemo, because I was so frustrated with the absolute lack of information about health and cancer. It was all about illness and death and cancer. Nobody ever talked about health. And um, I put together, gosh, I think we have 46, 48,000 people on the Facebook page there. And I've had a massive social media presence up to about 2016 because the Anti-Cancer Club was meant to be just an information resource. Uh, simultaneously, I designed a platform that rewarded compassion to people through long-term illness, kept them connected and rewarded compassion.
0: Mm -hmm. it's interesting when you know this is a podcast on language and culture and identity and one of the things that that i think i I feel as 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 you speak about cancer and and also about people connecting through it that there is almost a language of cancer um and i have to it's it's really interesting pat because you make me think of all these things and i think that's so wonderful that i that i'm sort of rediscovering these ways that I actually dealt with with my cancer as well. After I had recovered after my surgery, we were in the Dominican Republic, my whole family with my parents and my husband and the three kids. And uh, walking on the beach, I, I met a woman uh, who was just walking as well and she had had cancer. And I don't know how, but somehow within the first couple minutes, we, we discovered that about each other. And even now I feel <laughs> such a strong connection to, to her through that. And the only other experience that I can equate this to are experiences of connecting through, for example, Hungarian, um, this, this speaking the, the, the common language. Can you relate to that at all?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great observation on the language of cancer, because it does have its own language. It has its medical language. It has an emotional language. It has um, kind of a life cycle language. To it. And I think that it has an experiential language. I think that people who have been through a cancer experience share an experience that is intensely human and intensely mortal. And it is a way that you can bond very quickly and easily with somebody who has shared that experience. Mm -hmm. I was thinking today um, a lot of people compare COVID and cancer. I don't agree with the, the comparisons, in that, COVID is external. C- cancer is internal. And I think that the two experiences are processed very differently. But one of the interesting things that come out of COVID now is the fact that all these people have a shared experience mm-hmm. of COVID. And that's kind of cool because really we don't have that. I think we have fewer and fewer shared experiences anymore.
0: That's, so the, if there's something positive that comes out of COVID. <laughs> yeah. For me,
1: it was a time to change pivot to change direction you know I, I try i put the podcast out there and it it's it's been doing very well so it just migrated to its own website bumpintheroad.us um and it's growing really nicely we were just invited onto ariana huffington's thrive global platform and they get i think 3.56 million visitors a month amazing. so i'm really excited about that i hope it'll spread the word about bump but covid for me has actually been a period of a lot of creativity.
0: So could I ask you a a question that that you keep uh, dealing with in in Bump in the Road? You very often talk about the difference between ancient medicine and traditional medicine. Would you mind commenting that? Well, I
1: think that modern medicine is wonderful, and it has a real role to play in terms of our health, particularly when it comes to interventional types of things. but I think that there is a lot of human wisdom that we find as we go back in, in, in time or we look at different cultures. And I think the best of all worlds combines both of those experiences.
0: Right. Because you can't do one without the other. I think that's sort of uh, without traditional medicine and the, the benefits of the drugs and the, and the treatments that are available. If the
1: DNA. problem... In the U S anyway, with traditional medicine is it is interventional. When you leave the office, that's it. Goodbye. You're gone. It's like you drop off a cliff and we don't have any real continuity of care. And particularly for people living post cancer treatment, they're dealing with a whole range of social, psychological, financial issues, and nobody talks about any of it. It's, it has a stigma. It's just forbidden. And I'd, I'd like to see that conversation open up a lot more.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the questions you ask is, what do we choose to create? So, Would you mind telling me what have your guests chosen to create? What are some of the most interesting or intriguing or touching choices that you've discovered through your guests? They're
1: all amazing in their own way. Um, Liz Reardon was a breast cancer surgeon in the UK who was diagnosed with breast cancer, went through treatment you know, got a clean bill of health, the cancer came back in her chest wall, went through treatment again. As a result of all the treatment, she can no longer function as a surgeon. So here she was in her early 40s, just really out of training, just getting her feet down. And as she said, I had no friends, I had no hobbies, I I worked, I was a surgeon. And all of a sudden, she was faced with not only all the physical challenges that came as a result of uh, her her cancer treatments and the uncertainty and fear that it may come back, but she had to totally remake her life. And I think that's something a lot of cancer patients face in their own way. And I think that her story is so powerful because of that. Uh, One of my other favorite stories its actually going to be uh, published this week is um, Eric Weinmayer. Eric went blind at 14 And he is the first and maybe only blind person to climb Mount Everest and all the seven summits. And he climbed the face of El Capitan and he rafted the the whitewater rapids of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And some of those rapids are as dangerous as any rapids anywhere in the world. And the conversation with Eric is just incredibly inspiring. He's an amazing person. Um, who's really changed the perspective of not only what blind people can do, but what any of us can do. And um, I think the most interesting part of my conversation with him was Kerry's climbed all these major mountains. I mean, Everest, um, Denali, the, all the seven summits. And so much of the climbing was a lot of planning, a lot of conditioning, a lot of work, a lot of getting the right team together, and then just perseverance of putting one foot in front of the other. But then he went to raft the Colorado River and he just failed abysmally. I mean, he couldn't get the hang of kayaking as a blind person. It was just it was just terrible. And he spent years working on this. And as he went through the process of rafting the Colorado um, River, he realized it was so different from mountain climbing because mountain climbing, perseverance, suffering one foot after the other. Whitewater kayaking was more about being part of the energy and being in the flow and having that magical, eternal flow connection to the universe, which he experienced. And I love the fact, but I just so admire everything he's done and the hard work that's gone into everything, but that paradigm shift into, uh, from mountain climbing to kayaking, I find fascinating.
0: I, you 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 told me that story last week. I find it uh, amazing. It's 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 <laughs> it's one of those stories where you just have to breathe it in and 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 experience it vicariously. Oops. See, we have
1: some other really good ones. Genres of stories coming up. Um, I'd interviewed David McGinley, who's a fantastic person. He's an interfaith spiritual counselor in Halifax, Halifax, Canada, and he wrote a book called Beyond Surviving, and it's about his experiences as a interfaith minister as a cancer survivor and as somebody who's had a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. So I have several people coming up who will be talking about near-death experiences Mm -hmm. because they tend to be really life-changing events. And one of the things that is so interesting is that when people have these NDEs, they often keep it to themselves for years and it may take them a decade or longer to process the actual experience. And it's just a, I find it a fascinating topic. So I'm looking forward to exploring that a little bit more too. I think we, we have a lot to learn from each other um, in all these realms.
0: Mm-hmm. So this episode is entitled Time for a Road Trip. Where is your <laughs> road trip going to take you next? I wanna
1: go back to Mexico and spend some time there. I find the richness and the depth, the history and culture to be very interesting. Croatia is potentially on the list. Iceland is always on the list. Northern Italy is always on the list. Um, I'm not sure. Right now we still in New Mexico is still very shut down with COVID um, restrictions. So I'm just focused on bumping the road and working but I think next year um, it'll be time to really consider another road trip.
0: Pat, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? Oh, be happy and be well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This is Dr. J signing out.